reading is from uh, Revelations chapter 19 and that's page 877 of the Red Pew Bibles. We'll be reading from ch chapter 19 from verse 11 through to the end of uh, chapter 20. So reading from Revelations chapter 19 verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges the war. He, with justice he makes, sorry, with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is in the word of God is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider, on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest of them were killed by the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Chapter 20. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be let set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. 
In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who seated was seated who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here ends the lesson this morning. Word, we uh, pray now that as we give consideration to it that you would uh, free us from distraction and that uh, you would help us to grow in our spiritual insight and understanding that uh, we would walk in a way that is worthy of you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, Hollywood has produced a dazzling array of movies about the end of the world. Uh, in our household, which is female-dominated, we tend not to watch these movies, but uh, some of you may have seen movies like Devil's Advocate with Al Pacino or uh, End of Days and Terminator 2 starring. Who was the star of Terminator 2? Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, there was a couple of Bruce Willis films like The Fifth Element and Armageddon. Uh, I guess they're kind of younger blokes kind of movies, aren't they? They're sort of not chick flicks, but uh, anyway, you get the idea. They kind of uh, tap into stuff that is of interest to people and sometimes even of concern to people, and that is, uh, you know, questions about the end of the world. Uh, will it happen? Will there be an end of the world? Uh, when will it happen? How will it happen? Will it be a massive meteorite that smashes into the earth and throws us into some other orbit? Or will it be a nuclear holocaust that is going to cause destruction and so on? Uh, where is the world heading? Um, these are good questions. Uh, these, these are actually questions that the Bible says a thing or two about. And uh, often when Christians want to talk about you know, issues connected with the end of the world and so on, uh, what's the book of the Bible they turn to? They turn to the book of Revelation and often to chapters 19 and 20. Uh, in fact, that's what we're going to do today. So if I can ask you to open up your Bibles at Revelation chapter 19 on page 877. Uh, what we see in these two chapters is that John uh, records for us another vision that uh, he had received whilst he was on the island of Patmos. And I'm going to first of all just sort of paint a brief or do a, a brief sketch 
of uh, these chapters and then we'll get come back to it and flesh it out a little bit in more detail. And uh, I've summarised the chapters for you in your uh, outlines there, if you'd like to take a look at that. Uh, first of all, in chapter 19, verses 11 through to 21, uh, there is a description of a battle between the one who is described as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that's Jesus, a battle between Jesus and the beast. Uh, then in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, Satan is is bound and he's thrown into the abyss, into the uh, great bottomless pit, and he stays there for a thousand years. Uh, in uh, verses 4 through to 6, faithful Christian martyrs are raised and so that they will rule with Christ. Uh, in verses 7 through to 10, Satan is released for a short time and he gathers the nations to fight against God. Uh, he's soundly defeated and he's thrown into the lake of fire forever. And then finally in verses 10 through to 15 of chapter 20, uh, all people whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire forever. So you can see that's a brief sketch and you can see it's terrific material for Hollywood you know, films, isn't it? You can also see how it is that people come up with some pretty colourful and interesting interpretations of it. What I want us to do this morning is I want us to remember what kind of literature this is that we're, uh, we're reading. Uh, it is apocalyptic literature, which means that it is just packed with symbolism. And you see some of the symbolism quite evidently. I mean, in uh, chapter 19, verse 15, uh, Jesus actually does not have a physical sword coming out of his mouth. You know, it's, sim it's picture language. And the way I like to think of Revelation is that it's like looking at an impressionistic painting where if you get too close to the detail, you can't see that. You've got to stand back. You've got to look at the, at the big picture uh, in order to see what it's conveying. The other thing about Revelation, as we've seen as we've worked through, through it, is that there is a certain degree of repetition in Revelation. Uh, it's not a long timeline of events that's kind of pushing forward to it gets to the climax right at the very end, but rather it seems to be describing the same themes of... Uh, of, of judgment and of Christ's victory over and over again throughout the book. And so that it's like, I guess you could say it's like look, looking at a movie but looking at the same scene from different camera angles. And each time uh, the uh, battle between God and Satan is described in Revelation, it shows us a, a fuller picture uh, of the victory that Christ uh, one over the evil one. And so chapters 19 and 20 are painting for us another picture of this victory. Now, some people try to use the Bible uh, to answer their questions about uh, things to do with the end. And uh, so, so what they, they, they try to use the Bible to answer questions about when the day of judgment will come. 
But they're asking the wrong questions. Uh, you, if, if you want to understand, ask questions of the Bible, you've got to ask the questions that the Bible is actually answering and not, not ask different questions to that. I wonder how many of you remember Harold Camping. Does anyone remember who Harold Camping is? Okay, forgotten about him already. Yeah, Lachlan, who's, who's Harold Camping? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, he was a, a, a millionaire in America who last year and uh, up till last year had uh, spent a lot... He, he had looked at the Bible and looked at numbers in the Bible and done his calculations and he'd calculated the day that Jesus was going to return and he put a lot of money into advertising this to warn people of it that on May the 12th, 2012, that that would be the day that Jesus would return. Do you remember that more now? Okay. Because when the sun rose on May the 13th, uh, there was a few disappointed people around the place and also a few people were saying, we told you so. Um, so, so it was May the 21st and May the 22nd, rather. Um, other people keep an eye on world events in order to try to track, you know, to connect particular uh, events that are happening in the world with particular chapters in the book of Revelation so that they can see where in the timeline we're up to now uh, and predict when Jesus will return. The problem is that they're, they're, they're asking a question that Revelation is not answering <laughs> because the Bible doesn't tell us when Jesus will return. Um, in Mark chapter 13, for example, Jesus says that even he doesn't know the hour or the day. Um, only the Father knows. Some people say, yeah, he didn't say he knew the hour or the day, but he did know the month and the year. You know, it's that sort of stuff. He doesn't tell us, God does not tell us when Jesus will return, and the reason for that is quite simple, uh, because we should actually be living every single day of our lives as if Jesus could return today. Because when you do that, it means that each one of us needs to be prepared to meet our God, not next year, not next month, not next week, but now. Uh, are you prepared to meet God? If Jesus should return today, would you be in a position to face your maker? In other words, have you put your trust that Jesus has actually paid for your sin? Are you living for him? Of course, you may meet your maker today not by him coming, but by you going to meet with him. And so, you know, that's the issue there. Uh, Revelation is not answering the question about when Jesus will return, um, but there is a right question that we can ask of Revelation. And what is that right question? What is the question which Revelation does answer? Well, actually, this passage does answer questions about when and how the victory of Christ happens, but not in the way that a lot of people think. There are three ways in which the victory and the judgment happen. 
that are outlined for us in this passage. I'm going to go through those three ways with you now. First of all, in chapter 19, verses 11 through to 21, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is pictured as, as, uh, as, as entering and riding on the back of a white horse. Do you see that? Now, how is he dressed, this rider on the back of the white horse? Well, in verse 13, he is dressed in a robe which is, which is dipped in, what does it say? In blood. In blood. Now, warriors don't normally enter into the battlefield already dripping in blood. What this shows is that the victory has already been won. Um, and we see this uh, in other parts of the Bible as well, don't we? I wonder if you might come with me for a moment back to John's Gospel to John chapter 12. And we're going to look at um, verses 30 through to 33. You find that on page 762 with the Red Bibles. So in John chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So what is the kind of death that Jesus was going to die? Well, he would be lifted up like the snake on the pole in the desert in the time of Moses, that he would be lifted up, that those who look to him would be healed. Uh, he's saying that he would die the death of a Roman death, the death of crucifixion. But what does he say about judgment there? Well, when is the time for judgment on the world? What, what does he say? When, when will that happen? It happens. Can't hear you. What does he say? Have a look at the verse, verse 31. When is the time for judgment on this world? It is now. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, when will the prince of this world be driven out? He will be driven out now. You see that? See, it's a present tense kind of thing uh, that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Jesus would be crucified, but in his crucifixion, as he is raised up, what happens? Satan is defeated. Satan is driven out. Judgment takes place. As Luther wrote in his great hymn uh, of Satan, his doom is now writ. Um, the Apostle Paul uh, shows us more if you turn to Colossians chapter 2 for a moment. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In your Bibles there, you'll find it on page 833. Four, rather. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14... Uh, Paul says to the Christians in Colossae, "...when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature... God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Well, how did he do that? Well, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that stood against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, do you see that word triumphing there? It's a pretty complete kind of word, isn't it? 
It means to, to be victorious. It means to, to vanquish the foe. <clears throat> and that's what Christ has done. Uh, on the cross, as he bore the penalty for our sin, he took away from Satan the power that Satan had over us. What was the power that Satan had over us? Well, it's the accusing finger, isn't it? That, that says you are a sinner, that you are unworthy of God, that you deserve to go to hell, that you... And what did Jesus do on the cross? Well, he paid for the guilt that we had so that Satan is no longer able to accuse us, so that he's no longer able to take us with him to hell. So Satan has, in fact, been defeated on the cross. And that's what the, the vision, the vision that we see here in chapter 19 is a vision of a battered, a bloodied, a crucified Messiah who is also the victorious rider of the white horse. And the persecuted Christians in the seven churches in Asia Minor, they needed to, they needed to hear this. They need to, to understand that Jesus is the victorious rider of the white horse, that his clothes are soaked with blood, that Armageddon, the great battle between God and Satan, has happened at Calvary on the cross. That's where the power that Satan had over us was taken away from him. That's where the guilt for our sins was, was paid for as Jesus was punished in our place and Satan has been disarmed by the cross. So that's the first picture of victory in today's passage. The second picture of victory is found in chapters, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. I want to read that for you, chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, Having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain, he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So you see what it's describing there? Satan is bound, um, he's tied up, he's thrown into the abyss, into this bottomless pit for a thousand years. And uh, if we were to read from verse 4 onwards, uh, Christ then rules for a thousand years and after which comes the final day of judgment. Um, this... <clears throat> This thousand years thing, uh, we need to talk about it, don't we? Um, <clears throat> because there are, you know, there's a few different ways that Christians have understood this. Uh, it's often called the millennial. Uh, what I think I'd like to do is I'd like to just say a few words about the, the, the three different ways that Christians have understood the millennial or the thousand years. And friends, we're getting into very complex territory here with some of the thinking that people have had on these this thousand years. I can't go into the complex detail of it. I just want a brief sketch. 
of the three ways that people have understood the thousand years. So putting it very simply and at the risk of oversimplifying it, I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, the first view is what's called pre-millennialism. Anyone heard of that? Some of you have heard of premillennialism. Okay, so premillennialism, uh, that's the view which says that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that Christ will return, the second coming of Christ, he will return, and after he returns, he will rule on the earth for a period of 1,000 years, and at the end of that 1,000 years comes the final day of judgment. Okay, got that? That's premillennialism, and there are a whole stack of different varieties of premillennialism. Um, the, the second main view is the opposite to premillennialism, and it's called postmillennialism. So postmillennialism says that uh, there will be a period of 1,000 years before and after that, uh, and during that period of 1,000 years, uh, lots and lots and lots of people will become Christians. And at the end of that 1,000 years, that's when Jesus returns and he brings with him the day of judgment. So you got the idea there? Pre-millennialism, that means pre, that means Jesus comes before the millennial. Post-millennialism, that's when Jesus comes after the millennial. Now, the third view, and it's the one that I think makes the best sense of not just Revelation but the teaching of the Bible as a whole, uh, is called amillennialism. And in one sense, that's saying that there is no millennial. Well, what's saying... More, more specifically, it's saying that the thousand years that we read here is symbolic, just like every other number in the book of Revelation, except for the seven churches. I think literally there were seven churches, all right? But it's symbolic and it symbolises a long period of time. In fact, it symbolises the era in which we now live. So the, the, the era that is that began with the first coming of Jesus and with his death and his resurrection, therefore his victory. So it starts with the first coming of Jesus and his resurrection and it finishes with the second coming of Jesus. And in between time, Christ rules in so much that he rules uh, through his Holy Spirit, which rules the hearts and the minds of people like us. And during that time, there is a sense in which Satan is Bound. Let me explain that. Uh, I wonder if you remember what does Jesus say happens when a strong man is tied up? There's a question out of left field for you. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 12 for a moment. Matthew chapter 12, uh, page 
690. And the context here is that Jesus had just driven an evil spirit, a demon, out of a poor, afflicted man. Um, The enemies of Jesus, the religious authorities, they rejected the idea that Jesus had come from God. Uh, Instead, they said that Jesus was an agent agent of of Satan, that he'd come from Beelzebub. And uh, so he was doing Satan's work. And Jesus says, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, why would Satan... I mean, he's just driven out a demon. Why would Satan be fighting against himself? And have a look at verse 29. Well, we'll go back to verse 28, actually. He says, "But, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God... Has come upon you. And what that's saying is that in the coming of Jesus, we saw a whole lot of activity, didn't we? There was uh, uh, sick people were healed, um, blind people, deaf people, lame people were cured, um, dead people were raised to life again, uh, evil spirits were driven out of the people who they had afflicted. And that's because there's a clash of kingdoms going on here because the kingdom of God has entered into defeating the kingdom of Satan. In verse 29, Jesus says, Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Because as Jesus had come into the world... The strong man, Satan, was bound. He was tied up. Jesus was plundering his house. And in Matthew 12, you know, what happened to this demon-possessed man? Well, he was being released from Satan's grip, from Satan's power. And friends, Jesus continues to plunder Satan's household today. How does he do that? Well, it is through the proclamation of the word of God. It is through the the rider on that horse in Revelation 19 had a sword sticking out of his mouth. And in Hebrews 4, what is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And so that every time a person who is an unbeliever, someone who is actually living in the kingdom of darkness, every time a person... Hears the gospel message of Jesus and believes and puts their faith in Christ and turns back to him, then guess what's happening to Satan's house? It's being plundered. It's being taken away from him. That person who belonged to Satan now belongs to God. And that's a picture, the second picture of the victory that Christ has won. Well, the last picture of the victory is found in chapter 20 verses 7 through to 10. Let me read that. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, 
But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night for how long? Forever and ever. Now, that is a really weird passage, isn't it? What, what do you think's the weirdest thing about that passage? I reckon it's Gog and Magog. I mean, what on earth is that all about? Well, it's Old Testament stuff. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 39, in Ezekiel chapter 39, Gog and Magog uh, led armies in opposition against the people of God. And what did God do about that? He obliterated them. In fact, uh, their flesh was devoured by the birds, by the scavenger birds. Their bodies became a feast for birds. And it's just like the battle that's described in chapter 19, verse 21, where it says that all the birds gorged themselves on the flesh of those who opposed Jesus. What is this saying to us? The message is, that Satan has got about as much chance as Gog and Magog. And how much is that chance? That is a big fat zero. No chance. One day he will be thrown into hell forever on that last day. It's an interesting topic, hell, isn't it? Uh, some people say that it doesn't exist. Some churches say that hell doesn't exist. They say that when you die, if you're not a believer, then that's it. You're just annihilated. You don't exist anymore. That's not what the Bible says. And friends, when you think about the, you know, those Hollywood movies, what's wrong with them? Well, the thing is that they're all about when and how the world will end until, of course, the hero steps in and stops that from happening. But in the Bible, the important thing about the end of the age is not the destruction of the planet. In fact, the Bible teaches that the earth will be renewed, that the earth is actually good. Um, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The important thing is the day of judgment. In chapter 20, verse 15, anyone whose name is not found in the Lamb's book of life will be punished in the lake of fire. And I take it that that is symbolic of the fact that you just don't want to be on the receiving end of this punishment. Um, the Bible talks about hell uh, in terms of separation from God Forever. So passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 in verses 8 and 9, it says that those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of his glory forever. Uh, see, people think, well, I don't mind being in hell if that's where all my mates are. Uh, there's no mateship in hell. Um, See, the, the punishment fits the crime. You go through life saying, well, you know, thanks very much, God, but I don't really want you to be a part of my life. And on that 
final day, God says, fine, I will withdraw from you uh, with all of my blessings forever. Uh, Hell is where God is not, where none of God's blessings are. That's not where you want to be. Now, Christians differ about the details of this passage, as I've said. You know, is the thousand years literal? Is it before or is it after the return of Christ? Or is it, as I suggest, the era in which we now live? The real issue is that there will be a day when the world as we know it will end, a day when justice will prevail and heaven will be ours forever. Um, Apocalyptic movies have been around for a long time, actually. Does anyone amongst the older people here remember that 1950s apocalyptic movie called On the Beach? Who did it star, Mum? Gregory Peck. And who was the lady star? Ava Gardner. You got it right. Yep. The Northern Hemisphere had been obliterated by a, a nuclear holocaust. And the only place in the world that you could go for safe refuge was Melbourne. (laughs) Because it's kind of down under. Nothing much happens down there, you know. You could go... Friends, the Bible says, and the message of Revelation is that there is a real day of judgment and there is a place of refuge that is true and is real. And that place of refuge is the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who's paid for our sins, the one who's triumphed over Satan, the one who comes in with the robe that's dipped in blood. So have you found your refuge in Jesus? That's my question to you today. Have you turned to him? Have you trusted in him? Then if not, can I say, don't put it off. Don't think, well, I'll do it next year, or I'll do it next month, or I'll do it next week. Or... Because no one knows the day that Jesus will return. No one knows the day when you might actually meet him through other circumstances. So don't delay And if you have found your refuge in Jesus, then the message is stick at it. Continue to be committed to him, no matter what else is going on around. And as we do that, we are actually engaged in plundering Satan's household. As we take the the saving and the gracious message of Jesus Uh, into our families, uh, to our friends, to our workplaces, into our world. So that as we speak to others about Jesus, the uh, rock of ages cleft for me, that that hiding place, that safe refuge, as we speak to others about Jesus, that they might put their trust in him and be amongst those who on that day whose names are found to be written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what it's all about. That's what we need to be doing. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Father, we thank you that you do have a plan and purpose. 
We thank you, Father God, for Jesus and what he's done at Calvary, that he has indeed been triumphant. And Lord God, we look forward to that day when he would come again and put an end to sin and everything that is unrighteous in the world. And Father, that we would be with you uh, in your heavenly kingdom forever. And we pray, Father God, that you would be merciful and that through us that you would enable us to speak to others about your great kindness to us in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.